so good to sing together and rejoice in this hope that we've been given. It's eternal and unbreakable. So now we're going to go to God in his word to find Christ, our Savior, the one who we just sung about. I invite you to pray with me before we open up the book. Lord, you care about those who have yet to place their faith in your Son. And you care about your church, your beloved and elect, who you have a special eye on care for. So in whole, would you care for everyone in this room, to the preaching of your word, that we might behold the beauty and power of Christ, and for the Christian who is tired or weary, wounded, or in need of grace, would you care so that by your own grace and power alone that we might make it to see the second coming, and for those who hear, who are here and yet, to have placed their faith in Jesus. For those of you who are drawing, God, those you drew here, I pray that you would gently and kindly lead them to seeing your love. We love you, and you love us more. And so our faith is in you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was, uh, I was, on, I was online this week. And I uh, came across a pretty interesting article. It was uh, put out by the Children's Bureau of Southern California. And the title of the article was, A Father's Impact on Childhood Development. It was actually a really good article on how much a father's role impacts the life of his children, their, their person and overall well-being. And uh, within the article, it went on to cite a few studies to support this idea. And so I thought I just might start off by reading you some of the facts and statistics that the article spoke to in regard to fathers and their children. Fact number one, the article said, children who feel a closeness to their fathers are twice as likely as those who do not to enter into college or find stable employment after high school. They are 75% uh, less likely to have teen birth 80% less likely to spend time in jail, and half as likely to experience depression. The study also found that the quality of the father-child relationship matters more than the specific numbers of hours spent together. It found that high levels of fatherhood involvement are correlated with higher levels of sociability, confidence, and self-control. Children with involved fathers are less likely to act out in school or engage in risky behaviors in adolescence. 43% more likely to earn A's in school and 33% less likely to repeat a grade. Father engagement reduces the frequency of behavioral problems in boys and decreases the psychological problems and rates of depression in young women. And then the list changed and went on to talk about some of the facts of a father's um, inconsistency or not being there. This is what it said. Fatherless children are more prone to drug and alcohol abuse. They're more likely to get divorced, have a greater probability of becoming homeless. 90% of runaway children are fatherless. And uh, lastly, fatherless children are more likely to live overall shorter lives. So you might be thinking to yourself, okay, James, why are you starting off this sermon with, with all of um, these facts and statistics about dads? Well, of course, um, I'd like to reveal to you that fathers are a gift from God, and so they have a tremendous impact and vital role on children and families. 
Um, But secondly, and more importantly than this, as it relates to our sermon this morning, I read these things to us to remind us of how the Bible gives to God this exact title and role as Father. Did you know that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, spoke of God as being Father over 150 times? So it's really important. And on a practical level, it's not just important because um, it's important because whether we know it or not, oftentimes what ends up happening to us from our own lives and stories and experiences with our own dads is that you and I end up consciously or subconsciously projecting these thoughts and things upon God, which sometimes are good and oftentimes are not. And so this morning, I'd like to dive a bit deeper into the idea of knowing God the Father and show you why this is not just a true or biblical thing, but also a good thing, a glorious thing. How God the Father is a perfect Father, different than any Father who has ever lived. And if you and I take intentional time to behold the person and work of Christ, his Son, how we will not only be able to understand his good heart and character, but even more will be able to live in a type of freedom in light yoke that draws us into intimacy and love to receive the type of identity and affirmation meant only to satisfy our souls and bring us into complete joy with him. And so if you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be examining verses 1 through 10. The title of the sermon you'll see there up on the, the screens is Children Who Know the Father. And from our text, these 10 verses, I'd like to make three points. Number one, I'd like to show you the love of the Father. Number two, I'd like to show you the hope of the Son, of Christ, his Son. And number three, the marks of faith and godliness. The love of the Father, the hope of the Son, the marks of faith and godliness. We're going to begin our time by reading the text up front. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. John writes this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall become or we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning 
because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is of, or nor is the one who does not love his brother. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you the love of the Father. Well, this morning we're back into our series um, this week, and, and, and we find ourselves in the beginning of chapter three. And uh, as we begin, what we encounter yet again is John's love and affection for this church. We didn't read it, but actually John starts off this section in chapter 2, verse 28, with the phrase, and now little children. As a spiritual father and apostle over this church, we see how his love and affection for these believers in the church remains. And so it is in the spirit of love that we encounter this first word of our text, which is actually a command. If you look there, the word is see or look. See or look at what? The kind of love that the Father has given to the church. John here doesn't leave us guessing how to understand this kind of love. Actually, uh, through the context, he helps us realize and examine it. In the second half of verse 1, he helps us see that this kind of love reveals two things. That is, our status and identity as Christians. In verse 1, if you look there, we have this declarative statement made about our identity that God the Father himself declares over us. God the Father calls us his children. And then in verse 2 is our status. He says, beloved, we are God's children when? Now. In other words, John is saying we must behold or see the kind of love that the Father has given to us his children by declaring and making us his own. And it is not a future thing, it is a now thing. And the force behind this command or imperative, look or see, is that you and I must take time to think about this, to contemplate it, to dwell on, to meditate on it. The beauty found in the reality of our status and position before God, that we must, as children, let this fact sink deeply into our souls. What is this truth that should both startle and amaze us? What is this truth here John is speaking of that should leave us gasping and awestricken with wonder? It is the fact that you and I, before we met Christ, were once aliens and strangers to God the Father and all of his promises. But now, through God's mercy, through Christ alone, have been brought near and adopted into the family because of one and only one thing. His love. His love. Depending on what translation of the Bible you have, in verse 1 you'll either have the phrase, what sort of love is this? What uh, great love is this? Or what manner of love is this? And, and the word that makes all the translations vary is actually the word what? What? In Greek, it's the word potipin, which originally means of what country? Of what country? It's a, this word what is a, is a word used in the Bible to express encountering something foreign, something that we are not used to seeing or indeed have never seen before. This word what is the word that the disciples used after Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember what they said? 
They said, what kind of man is this? That even the winds and waves obey him. In other words, Jesus was in a different category from anything that the disciples had ever come across or seen. And John is saying to us here that this is also true for us as Christians concerning the love of God. It is different than anything that we have ever experienced or can dream up or imagine. It's so good it's actually hard to believe. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 is actually true. That God showed his love for us in this. That while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were aliens, strangers, wretched, guilty, unclean, lowly, despised, sorrowful, hurting, down, lost, without love, without hope, without promise, God, in his great love, chose us by and through sending his Son to come and die for our sin so that we might be forgiven and have access to him. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you, nor did he choose you because you were more numerous or more glorious than other peoples. But it was because he loved you. And his love is so great That in Christ, he did not just love us for one moment, in one time, take us in, and then to send us off out on our way, but rather what he did through Christ was bring us in, care for us through Christ, and then adopt us into his family so we could stay. One man named David Jackman said this, I suppose that because this love is unconditional and limitless, that we human beings find it very hard to accept. Many Christians I've met have never known a love like this in any other relationship. In childhood, they learned that their parents' approval and love had to be earned by conforming to their orders and living up to their expectations. And because they could never be good enough or achieve enough, they were never sure of being accepted. This, This is it right here. The thing that you and I, all of us as Christians, must get not only to appreciate this doctrine of adoption, but also to flourish in it. What is it? It is the fact that God did not choose us because we did something for him. But he chose us freely by doing something for us. Solely for the fact of revealing his love so that you and I might become objects of mercy and he as our savior might seem and be to us glorious. This is the one thing about the doctrine of adoption that never changes. That God's love is free, it is lavish, it was and is and always will be the same. In other words, if he loved us as rebellious orphans who did not belong or did not do anything For him, but against him, how much would he now more love us as his children and keep us along the way? And I think that this is the thing that all of us are tempted to forget along the way. I had this professor in seminary named Dr. Robert Peterson. He uh, he lived as an orphan up into his late teen years, and you probably know this about orphanages and adoption agencies, the longer you live as an orphan, the harder it is to be adopted. But uh, one day, Bobby was there, and this 
this husband and wife walked into the adoption agency and out of all the children uh, chose him, chose Robert. And uh, after leaving the adoption agency, um, one of the first things that the family chose to do together was go bowling. And so uh, Dr. Peterson talked about the immense pressure that he felt before his new family to bowl perfect strikes. But here's the thing. Every time he rode the ball, it went into the gutter. And then after experiencing that horrible game, they took him out for Chinese food. And he thought, well, I didn't impress him at the bowling alley. I'm going to impress him with the chopsticks. And he picked up the chopsticks, have never used them before, and he failed miserably. And so after failing miserably at the alley and miserably with the chopsticks, they're sitting across the table from his new father, his new dad, in that moment said this, Bobby, would you like to be my son? Would you like to be my son? This was Bobby's introduction to grace. This is what you and I have to remember concerning us and God. That it was an, out of an act of free grace and love through the work of Christ, apart from anything that you and I ever did by God's own choosing, that he was pleased to call us his children. And now, being called his children, we are heirs of the promise and co-heirs with Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament says that we are adopted as sons and daughters by which we cry, Abba, Father, which actually means Daddy. So now through Christ we get a heavenly Daddy. And our status before a heavenly daddy is banked on, counted on, assured in the complete life and work of Christ. Therefore, we never have to doubt or second guess how he's viewing or treating us. Because his love for us doesn't depend on our merit. It depends on the merit of Christ. He never gets angry. He's never disappointed. He never grows impatient. He's never saying, how could you? You're a failure. He's always saying, you're loved. I delight in you. You have my affection. I am eager to show you how I am taking myself, my son, my spirit, and all of heaven and giving it to you as a gift. One man I dearly love and look up to, who I respect immensely, once said this, the Father's legal act begins with acceptance and then proceeds with loving support. Not only does he accept us as pardoned and righteous, but he also comes down from the judge's bench and puts his arm around us and say, as it were, now I have great plans to enlarge my family. I'm taking you to my home in glory, even now. And I'm going to provide for your every need. I want you to learn to call me Abba, Father. You see, if we want to understand how much we actually trust and know the gospel, we must look at our lives and see if we are truly living as children before our Father in heaven or if we're living as orphans. If our status and identity as children before God in heaven is not the thing that fuels our worship or our prayer life or our obedience or our perspective on ourselves and life, this may be a clear indicator that we know little of the love of God, but rather of a law and weighty gospel that all functions to keep us feeling unworthy, unloved, inadequate, or not enough. 
And so I ask you the applying question. Are you living like a child or are you living like an orphan? When are you most tempted to act like an orphan or believe it? What people or places or situations make you feel or believe that you're unloved? Do you think that after encountering God's love, that it is by your own merit that you must keep it? You can't. If you attempt that, it would only cause on your neck a heavy yoke. Apart from everything, everything or anything you've ever done, before the world began, God saw you in Christ and he fell in love with you. Therefore, I say you're des desired, you're delightable, you're affirmed, you are doted over, you have a new and perfect identity and status before God that cannot be moved or changed. What I want for us to see about this doctrine of adoption that it not only changes the perspective on God, but also on ourselves, and it is the thing that enables us to live freely in mercy with a light yoke. Amen? Well, that was point number one, the love of the Father. We're moving along in our text now, and I'd like to show you point number two, which is the hope of Christ, his Son. After speaking about the doctrine of adoption, uh, what John does here in this text is um, shift to another doctrine called the doctrine of glorification or glory. If you look there in verses 2 through 3, he begins to turn the church's attention to the second coming. He says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, future tense, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, future tense, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, future and present tense together. What John is doing here is expounding upon this idea that we call the already not and not yet. Our guest preacher last week, Jeremy Prather, spoke about it a little bit. But here in this text, the idea is even more clear. What is this idea of the already and not yet? Well, it's this truth that we as Christians have salvation already. But how the image of Christ in us and God's kingdom come in this world has not yet fully come. What John wants for us to see especially or specifically is that right now we are fully God's children. But when Christ comes who is our salvation and he appears to us, this work that God started when he saved us, he will ultimately bring to complete. And so we are God's children now by this declarative word and Holy Spirit work in his uniting us to Christ. But from this idea found here in this text, we also understand that the Spirit is progressively working in us up until this point. Why do we need to hear this? Well, because on this side of heaven, what you and I have an experience in life are two things. Number one, a sin struggle, and number two, suffering. Thomas Watson, who was an old Puritan preacher, once said this, no vessel can be made of gold without fire. So it is unlikely that we can be made glorious unless we are melted and refined in the furnace of affliction and trial. In other words, all of our 
failure and shortcomings, all of our hardship and sufferings that we now experience in this life are not meaningless or useless, but the good news of the gospel is that God is sovereignly using every ounce of it progressively to work out our salvation, which will ultimately culminate and complete upon the appearing of our Savior in glory. And so it is right and good for us to meditate and remember the second coming which often is an idea that scares people because on that day there will be a great day of judgment. But if you look here in this text, John is speaking without an ounce of fear. He's actually speaking with hope and confidence. And you better believe that John is a sinner. But here we have, in light of this day, no dread, no shame, no second guessing, no hiding, or no fear. Why? Because on the great day of the Lord, the promise of the church is that God will complete his work of grace in us by and through his coming and spirit revealing his son, Jesus Christ. Which means when you and I behold Christ in glory, in a moment we shall become like him, sinless and free. Free from sin, shame, guilt, condemnation, and also suffering. This is the great hope of the New Testament church. James Montgomery Boyce, an old famous preacher, said this, God did not bring us his children into spiritual life to thereafter abandon us and let us go. He brought us into life in order to make us completely like Jesus and take us with him into heaven. Therefore, here, John cannot stop his rhapsody with the mere thought of what we are now, but rather goes on further to reflect what we shall be when our Savior appears. In other words, God is the one who saved us. God is the one right now who is saving and keeping us, and God ultimately will be the one to appear to save us. We once were dead in our sin, But now we have been made alive together with Christ. And now through his spirit in us, God is both using sovereignly our failure and our struggle to refine us in a fire to make us like gold. And when the heavenly gold, who is Christ himself, appears, we too shall be like him as heavenly gold. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Philippians chapter 1, For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I think, in fact I know, that far too many Christians are living joyless joyless lives. If you're a Christian and your life is not full of joy, you are most likely carrying a weight that only Christ is meant to carry. Whether that be through your failure or through your suffering, let me just remind you that your Savior did not only die to defeat the power of sin, but he rose to defeat the power of death, and he's coming again. And as we wait, we are not without care or hope, 
but we have the Spirit who applies to us Jesus' invitation. From Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says to us now, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest is a lot different than living life before God on a performance treadmill. The performance treadmill of good deeds and religious activity will do you no freedom, good, or justice. What we need to know as Christians is that our baby steps of obedience or acts of faith, even when we stumble, fall, or doubt, or find it hard to believe the gospel, is that God does not stop smiling at us or removing his love or affirmation from us. Because Christ earned it once and for all, and our lives are hidden in him. And so I ask you, what is stripping you from joy? What's stripping you from joy? In other words, what is keeping you from experiencing and knowing God's free love? Christ wants to carry the weight. Jesus can carry the weight of failure and suffering so that his, his yoke becomes light and easy. And we experience that through his kindness and gentleness. He is the perfect Savior who died because he loves you. You are perfectly sealed in him. You are a child of promise. Nothing can break the power of God's promises that are found in his word. There is only one hope in this life, and it is the life and death of Christ, his resurrection, and his second coming. And so if you here now are a Christian and you've been struggling in sin or suffering, I say to you, you have a Savior. You can lay down and rest in all of it. He'll carry it for you. That was, sorry for the abrupt ending, that was point number two. We're going to move now and finish our time together in point number three, which is the hope of, uh, I'm sorry, the mark of faith and godliness. I went up to Duluth this week to, uh, you know me, uh, the, the Korean day spa, Jeju Sauna. I like to get rowdy in there. I like to sit in the sauna. That's my place. You know that. So I was sitting in the sauna and uh, all by myself, zenning out, just enjoying rest. And I don't know how long I was in there, but uh, this young man walked in. And the first words out of his mouth came with the first steps into the room. And he said to me, yo, bro, do you blank with Jesus? I won't uh, use that word because it's inappropriate. But he was basically saying, do you mess with Jesus? And it startled me. It startled me. It caught me off guard. And um, I said, well, uh, he's my God and I love him. Uh, do you ask because you see the, 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 the cross tattoo in my arm? And uh, he didn't answer the question. He just went on to tell me that he's a monk. Um, how he grew up in the Christian mystic church, which is a heretical church. And uh, now that he is an adult, um, he's into seeking Christ consciousness. If you don't know what that is, that's a mixture of Eastern uh, religious uh, spirituality. He told me how he just got back from a week in California consulting a guru who promised to use energy to heal his inner thoughts and torment. And... Um, at the end of the session, uh, how they together were chanting and calling upon monsters. 
And so I tried to listen. I said, wow, that's really interesting. I was intrigued. And then he tried to give me advice. He said, hey, um, you know, God put me in your life for a reason. You should think about what I'm saying. And I said, hey, I absolutely will uh, think about what you're saying. It's intriguing. But with all due respect, I do want to let you know that I know the one and only true living God who is the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. And he was like, yeah, Jesus is the, the way shower. And I said, well, actually, in the Bible, he says that he's the only way. And he said, um, well, how do you know the Bible's true? Have you ever read the Apocrypha? And I said, I have. He said, have you studied church history? I said, I have. I don't know it all, but, I, but I'm familiar. He said, I don't know, man. I've grew up around Christian fundamentalists my whole entire life, and all I've ever experienced from them was anger and hot-headedness. And I said, wow, I'm really sorry. They may or may not have been angry for all the right or wrong reasons. I said, but did you know that God actually has anger in him? And he was thrown off. I said, God holds anger against evil and sin because he's holy. I said, this is what keeps him perfectly just and moral. But here's the great paradigm of the Christian faith. That God, while being perfectly just, is also perfectly merciful. And this is why Jesus and the cross is everything for us Orthodox Christians. That Jesus, being the sinless son of God, satisfied the justice of God. And as he died a death that sinners should have died, died, God himself offers to rebellious creatures mercy. This is why Jesus needs to be both 100% man, 100% God, and sinless. And he stared at me blank because he never heard it before. I asked him, I said, you ever heard this? He said, I haven't. I said, man, I'll think about what you said. Would you think about what I said? I'd be glad to pray for you. And then it started getting real intense and heated in that place. You know, I was sweating a lot. I got to get the heck out of here. So I left. I said, it was great to meet you. Hope to see you again. Um, The reason why I tell you this story is because in the last big section of this text, this is pretty much the problem and dilemma that John is addressing here in this church. The Gnostics or false teachers of this time were claiming that this young man, were claiming what this young man claimed. That salvation was achievable apart from Christ through higher and more elevated levels of spirituality while all at the same time living in immorality. But if you look there in verse 3, John says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. And then he transitions us into verses 4 and 10. And it's in verses 4 and 10 that he pretty much takes the church from rapturous thoughts of spiritual things to practical application. Why? So the church would not be tempted to to float away on vague clouds of spirituality, but rather be rooted in the gospel and godliness by making their faith practical through holy living. And here's where I think this danger from this text comes to us. I do not believe, maybe this might be true for some, but majoritively speaking, I do not believe that many of us here in this church see the doctrines or beliefs of mysticism or Gnosticism and say, yeah, I'm tempted to believe that. But here's what I do, I believe that we as people are tempted to. To keep an orthodox confession of Christ and to say that we love him and even attend church. But outside these church doors live lives that are really no different than the rest of the world. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if someone were to examine our lives outside of church in light of our confession, what would they see? If you look there in verse 9, John says, 
that it is impossible for a person to know God or have seen God and yet remain in sin. James, doesn't everyone sin? Absolutely, everyone sins. But John here is not talking about general uh, sin or random sporadic sin that pops up in our life. He's talking about specific ongoing lifestyle that continues to practice or make habits of ungodly things. My brothers and sisters, this is where God's grace comes to us to help us understand that the key to knowing and seeing the Father is found in believing in Christ the Son and faith in him finds its evidence, true evidence, in holy gospel living. In other words, you can't say you know God if your life does not show proof of it, if your life does not bear the marks of a Christian. What are the marks of a Christian? A hunger and thirst after God. And enjoying an intentional pursuit of him through prayer as he intentionally enjoys and pursues you. A hunger and thirst of his word. A hunger and thirst for his great world mission. Of his local mission. Of a deep love and affection and desire for those of us who hear in the local church. A hatred of sin. A hatred of evil. A love for the lost. Living sensitively to the Holy Spirit. Because we have been born again to a living hope and in this text have a holy seed, which is a reference to the Spirit in us because we become born again. These are the marks of a Christian, a born again Christian. John here is asking us to push the pause button on our lives to examine our orthodox confession to see how much of our lives and our life activity is a evidence of the Savior we say that we believe in. And so in summary, this is what his love and mercy is to produce. Holy living. Who and what we are is to overflow into what we do. What we do is not our security. Christ is. But our lifestyle bears evidence of the one who saved us. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, No one is perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But uh, there is one who hasn't. Jesus. He provides salvation for the church with hope and assurance in his work alone. Christ in his first coming came to destroy the power of sin and death, and he's coming for the faithful. If you've been born again by the Holy Spirit and brought to new life and really are a Christian, I ask you, by God's grace from the text, to examine how you are living. Is God the main motive and purpose of your life? If you're a child of God, you're wanted. If you're a child of God, you're perfect. And if you're a child of God, God has laid before you a pathway of obedience for you to know him and experience him as the true prize of salvation. JJ, my son, I'll close with this. JJ, my son, um, asked my wife Lizzie to, to send me a text today, and I got the text 
in my office, I was just preparing for the sermon, and it was a video of JJ. He made this um, robot out of boxes, tissue boxes, and little paper toilet rolls. It was like um, all held together with scotch tape, just kind of bending and leaning, looking like it was going to fall down. And then he got a marker, and he put the little face in the middle, and he said in the video, Dad, this is Robot 66. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but this is Robot 66. And I just, as I watched my son boast in this work, I was just doting over him as a child. And actually, I was driven to tears because how much I love him. This is how God thinks about you infinitely greater for those of you who are here in Jesus, I encourage you towards a holy life to know him more. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've washed us clean, that we're guiltless and there's no condemnation. As we prepare to receive the elements at the table, Lord, may they truly be a means of grace. Where we eat and drink and are strengthened to live lives of faith as we wait for the second coming. We love you, Lord. Please be with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.